0: technically it's good to do three rows but i think we'll use up all our juice and we won't have anything for the episode if we keep going (laughs) Uh. well i suppose we
1: should uh scream about activism and then work out what's allowed to go in the episode
0: okay right yay hello fuckers (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we've missed you oh have you missed us we've missed you so much the, all the conversation that you have back to us we just miss it so much Thank you so much <laughs> welcome to Gin Salt that's Tempest hi I'm Lolo we... we are burlesque performers if this is your first episode tuning in to us just talking this isn't my voice <laughs> this is your first episode tuning into to us <laughs> hi we're Ginsult. we used to be employed but then a pandemic and we went from being showgirls to being show-offs so here we are you're welcome I think that's the best intro I've ever done.
1: I think that is the best intro. Remember back in the day when we spent a long time writing a really long intro and recording it and then we just binned it and then we could have just had what you did.
0: Yeah, we'll record that section. We'll get Rich just to like copy and paste it into every, every episode. Have you listened to our like early episodes recently or like listened back to them? Not recently. I can't face it. (laughs) Because I know that we were really, really, what's the word, safe and green clean and proper. And now we're just like, well, if we just start the podcast mid-conversation, then they'll get the gist of what's happening. It's fine. (laughs) You'd
1: either hang with us or you're not down
0: with the flow. Down with the flow. All right.
1: 1996. Yeah, it's all about the 90s, baby! Hi, everybody. (laughs) Today, we've got a topic that you voted for. And then it was the second runner up uh, that I've been pushing to do for ages. And I've now f- reluctantly forced Lolo into a corner.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, been cornered like a rabid dog.
1: Uh, she just eye rolled so hard that I'm pretty sure that you did hear the slap of her eyelashes. <laughs> to see her face reverberating across your eardrums yeah. right now. My
0: eyelashes have grown back. Like I have all my eyelashes now oh, from course. like like years of glue and fire. They've all grown back and they're very luscious. Well, wow. Fucking, you your luscious eyelashes. <laughs> yeah, luscious eyelashes and like luscious arm hair as well. All my arm hair is growing back. It's really nice because I've just been singeing it off for the last well, seven years. <laughs>
1: I miss those times. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> today we've got an action-packed episode. We're going to be talking about activism. Woo! Woo! We just love an ism. We, we love an ism. Activists we laugh. Problems of Activism. I think a lot of this is going to circle around social media and the highs and lows that social media <gasps> brings to being activist, and then hopefully some positive and helpful suggestions and resources for those of you because I feel like our listeners are a very active activism community, which is lovely.
0: I feel like it weird ginsalt the hypocritical alcohol's anonymous for social media. <laughs>
1: Jinsoul, we hate everything, but we're pretending it's intellectual.
0: Oh, yeah. If we just wrap it up in some form of argument and with some form of Wikipedia research, then we sound like we know what we're doing. (laughs) Jinsoul, it's Wikipedia with expletives. (laughs) I specifically avoided Wikipedia in this one because I had a lot of issues with the way they wrote about things. Wikipedia and activism is actually surprisingly really... What is activism, Tempest?
1: Oh, fuck
0: you. <laughs> you know I did that. <laughs> don't know why you're surprised. Uh, come on, trot out your dictionary definition. Okay. Because I actually, genuinely, when we were going away, I was like, I want to research an activist. But I was like, actually, hang on. What is an activist? Who is an activist? Who can I research? So I typed in what is an activist into Google because I'm professional. <laughs> and Google mm. told me that an activist is a person who campaigns to bring social and political change. Wonderful. It's quite simple. Yeah. So that's like a really quite a broad range of humans and anyone can be an activist by being a part of movements or anything like that. And I thought, oh, okay, cool. That doesn't narrow down my scope of research at all, you prick. But it's absolutely fine. Um, yeah, because I was like, I don't know who to research. Hmm. Would you consider yourself an activist? Ooh,
1: do you think that's like, do you consider yourself an ally? Because there is a school of thought that if you call yourself an ally, then you probably aren't really as good an ally as you think. <laughs> Um, I consider myself a armchair activist. (laughs) (laughs) I just just end with armchair. And I was like, cool. Uh, Because you have people that are, uh, activism is what they do. And they, they actually spend either for their job or the majority of their spare time, grassroots getting shit done. And I am more of a, I'll try and bring activist habits into my private life and I'll try and use our platform to affect some change. And I say some change because we've got to be realistic. And as we talked about in another episode, like I think sometimes it can feel like our job in burlesque is activism. Actually, our job is to perform and put on shows. <laughs> but along the way, hopefully we can make some droplets of good into the world. So I, I guess... I hesitate to say I'm an activist because it's it's not the primary thing that I do, but I try and do what
0: I can. How about you? I, I'm i the same as you because I it's the same where I'm like, I don't know what makes you an activist and things like that. I say that I have aspects of activism in my life and it's important part of my critical thinking, but it doesn't make me an activist and I don't feel I can say that. It's just, I, I'm the same as you. The people who call themselves activists and stuff like that, I, I always am like, okay, cool that's that's great that's fine um but it's just saying it doesn't make it so Mm. and yeah and it's also it it implies like a very much like a 24 7 and there's definitely times that my strive for political change or anything like that or anything i've done has definitely dampened or not been there at all and also the idea of being an activist i don't know if you came across this in your research is there's no such thing as an entirely good whole person and to claim yourself as an activist puts you in a space where you kind of have to be this whole good person on every account but every person I've researched has one or two things which people are angry about or not okay with and I feel that it puts in a lot of space for judgment and kind of pressure and it doesn't make sense doesn't make sense I like activism but I didn't say I'm an activist at all no
1: yes that's so interesting how we how we view activism we attach a kind of morality to it don't we which really doesn't sit well with the reality of what human beings are like
0: no not at all
1: (laughs) i think yeah we expect like perfection from activism and i guess we can get into it when we come into things like cancel culture or you know when people get very angry when they see people supporting one cause but it's not the cause they feel strongly about this perfection of activism i don't know hopefully by the time we get
0: there i'll have worked out a better term for it or you will oh it's like activists like the kind of modern day saint Mm. people want to look up to something that is a representation of good But what we're learning now with information and just the sheer fact that everyone's life is so accessible to us now. Like we are learning as people as whole characters now more than we ever had. They're not like rumors or just presented in the press as a certain angle. We can see their entire lives almost unravel before us. And we're learning that humans are fallible entirely. And we'll get into that kind of item much later. But yeah, I think activism is extremely important. And um, there are many people that are called activists during their life or after their death which is usually very, very common. Did you want to talk about a particular movement in general? I was going to talk about
1: some of the connections that our industry has with activism through two examples of performers and just a kind of general overview of some pockets to challenge this idea that I've heard in my career, which is, I just don't think Bella should be political. So that's the route I was going to go down.
0: Mm. Yourself? I'm going down the route of activism within queer community and specifically going back to a very very important pivotal event but visiting events that have also been very important specifically in the uk as well so i've decided to bring to the table activists that I will willfully call an activist and believe as an activist. Um, This year, last year, Christ, time has passed. We're not in 2020 (laughs) anymore. In 2020, we saw um, a huge upheaval of the movement of Black Lives Matter um, movement, which is extremely important. And one of the things that um, we've been talking about in the queer communities and the LGBT communities for years, and it's something that I actively talk about and try my best to talk about, is how a lot of our rights as queer folk stand on the shoulder of a black trans woman in particular. It's really important to note this because specifically in like gay culture in the UK, we seem to be represented still by a white man or white male couples. This is not a representation and that is becoming increasingly problematic because it's not inclusive of the world. Diversity within our communities. So, when we look back into what Pride is, where Pride came from, and I'm I'm pretty sure I'm talking about sucking eggs to kinky grandmas to you lot, but we all know Pride comes from uh, an event that happened at the Stonewalls in 1969 in New York City. So, there is a character, a character. They're a real person. (laughs) There is a human called Martha P. Johnson, uh, who is one of the real key figures in that movement and those riots that happened, a riot that we, to this day across the world, still commemorate and celebrate. We have to remember that Pride is a protest. And in order to do that, we have to look into its history. So I'm going to talk about Martha P. Johnson. I'm excited. Yes, I'm very excited. It's a lovely, heartbreaking story in terms of the recognition. That happens, And it's also a case of like, I came to London and knowing Pride and going to Pride and getting frustrated with it because it just didn't represent me at all. And then going back into its history and realising that Pride doesn't represent anyone (laughs) sometimes. (laughs) Mm. And I get very, very frustrated with it, especially the Pink Pound. But we're not going to do the Pink Pound today. We should though another time. Oh God, I could, all Marks and Spencers can go suck my dick. Anyway, so Martha P. Johnson. And Stonewall Wyatts gather round, children settle down. So Martha P. Johnson uh, was an African-American transgender activist and pioneer. Martha P. Johnson, the P she always said stand for pay it no mind, which I always loved and thought was a very (laughs) beautiful way of speaking. She was also a drag artist and a sex worker and very much a part of the LGBTQ culture in uh, New York City. After graduating in New Jersey from her high school, she arrived in New York in 1963, only with a bag of clothes and $15 to her name, as the story goes. At 23 years old, 23 years old... (laughs) I wish I had this much belief in what I believed. I think it's incredible. At 23 years old, Johnson became a key figure in the events that followed the police raid of Stonewall Inn on the 28th of June, 1969. Now, if you weren't familiar with what happened, basically the police in particular in America and in New York City, were essentially raiding gay and uh, LGBTQ spaces. People were being unfairly prosecuted for it. And people were unfortunately dying and disappearing. It's not a story we are not unfamiliar with. This is something that still happens and something we should be concerned about for very many different kinds of human beings. But this was particularly rife. So a raid happened and Martha P. Johnson in particular eventually stood against the police along with um, Sylvia Rivera, Uh, So, Johnson herself uh, resisted arrest. That's how it kind of started with their own story. And they occupied spaces, including police stations and actively protested, which became known as the Stonewall Riot so after that after the riot Riviera and Johnson went on to found STAR which stands for Street Transvestite Activism Revolutionaries people obviously have a lot of issues with the fact that transvestite is used in this context but I have to hammer home how there was no language around gender diversity there was no language around transgender in any way gender norm conforming was a luxury of a term that didn't even exist then so it was this was the language they had and that was to support young trans folks specifically ones who are homeless because unfortunately in the time that sort of behavior that sort of identity anything along the lgbtq lines could mean that you'd be rejected from society and your home unfortunately this is still very much a problem and i'll point you in the directions of charities that help with that today so the record goes that martha p johnson did suffer some serious mental health issues um, as they were checked in, in and out of psychiatric hospitals but despite this they really pushed forward in their activism supporting local youth as much as they physically could. There is a quote that I absolutely love, which is when uh, Martha was asked in 1970 about her ambitions with her activism, she said, my wish is to see liberated, Ah, (laughs) to see people liberated and free, to have equal rights that other people have in America. It's very simple and to the point and wonderful. Notes from her life, just to give a bit of character um, and something that I really enjoyed. When researching her and first-hand documents about her relationships with people within the LGBT community and with people in the area and the culture, she was known for being this absolutely gloriously larger than life character but thrifty as fuck and this to me is like the pinnacle of drag this kind of like making something out of nothing she was known to fish her costumes out of bins and turn them into beautiful pieces of like plastic flowers and absolutely obnoxious huge sequins massive red heels stacked wigs everything but usually found in odd shops and just out of bins like Martha didn't live a life of luxury not what we see drag queens today that's kind of like oh it's all opulence and ridiculous and very expensive like well no we come from somewhere which is really really thrifty and that's because it's a self-expression and it's, it doesn't pay is the main thing so uh the other things to remember is that she performed with the hot peaches and the, one of the things that she's most famous for in the sense of documentation is that she was photographed by Andy Warhol in 1975 hang on 1975 yep yeah. Um, I found a quote that made me cry this morning because I think it's uh, it was in the year she died in one of her last interviews. And it says, I was nobody from no one'sville until I was a drag queen. And that made me burst into tears because I was like, oh my God, I actually feel that wholly entirely. Obviously in a quite different way, but it's that kind of idea that you grow your identity yourself and you become who you are through expression and art. In 1992, her body was found in the Hudson River. Police ruled it was suicide. However, till this day, a lot of people who were in her life disbelieve that and disagree with it. So we're still unsure. Before her death, she was diagnosed with HIV and was an activist for HIV persons um, within the LGB community. And that is the life of Martha P. Johnson, wrapped up in a lovely, lovely little ball. Absolutely incredible human being and delightful, and apparently very lovely.
1: Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. Um, Yeah, yeah, so I obviously know, like, the main headlines of her story, but don't know a huge amount about her, so it was lovely to learn more and hear the quotes from her. Um, So she was a trans woman and a drag queen?
0: Uh, Yes. So the main issue with reporting about her life is something that I came across and got quite frustrated with, is that... A lot of people report her as a gay man and a drag queen. But a lot of first-hand accounts and a lot of people in their relationships and around that time very much say that her identity was gender non-conforming and a transgender human and transgender woman. The honest truth is that through our life, there wasn't necessarily the language around to express that to the wider communities. So people documenting at the time very much saw gay man in a dress and this seems to be the front line of it to the point where even the BBC's article specifically about her that I read all only refers to her as a man, mm. which isn't, isn't really respectful to the memory. And the thing is, she always referred to herself as Martha. So it's a case of respecting the self-identification. Mm. It's interesting. So transgender and drag queen, but a drag queen may have been the only way to identify at that time. Mm. That makes
1: sense. Mm, yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Yeah. How old
0: was she when she died? 46. Oh, that's sad, isn't it? Yeah, very young. And over the last year, because I've seen her face plastered everywhere as like a poster for the LGBT community, and we should pay tribute. And, and in fact, there will be a monument raised to her this year uh, in New York, oh, which nice. should be pretty cool. But I don't think people realise. And I don't think people know. And it's like, I, when I moved to London, I was so excited because like, I knew I was, I've always known I was queer in the sense but like, I wanted to be around people and like feel like part of community. And I did find part of my community, but I didn't find my community at Pride. I always really, really, really didn't like Pride. Just made me feel oh god just so uncomfortable like i just didn't feel like i belonged there i didn't it was aggressive it felt commercialized it felt like people were trying to use this identity for an excuse to either misbehave or like just get drunk and also like the sheer amount of like litter in the street pride is should be punk and as far as i considered punk is compassion and kindness that's punk as fuck and uh, i just really really i've hated it so i've always never gone to pride until this last year i had my first pride And it was the Black Trans Lives Matter protest on Pride. And I remember walking and for the first time being a part of a Pride march and actually feeling a part of Pride. And that was really amazing. And that was my highlight of 2020 and I'll never go away. So that's really nice. Mm -hmm.
1: So if you had your, if you could design Pride, Mm. it would be much more of a... Or of a recognition, I guess, of activism and protest, would you say?
0: Yeah, it's a protest. You can still celebrate in a protest. I think people get confused that it's either a party or it's a protest. It's like, well, no, if you're doing protesting right, it's a celebration because you're putting forward what you think is positive but at the same time standing your ground and knowing that there is still a lot of prejudice. So, yeah, it would be more of a protest. It's just all these really expensive floats. And so... My main issue with Pride is because I come out of it as a performer. what you were going to say <laughs> yeah and as a performer I should be really really grateful for all the pride gigs and I am to a certain extent but what I'm not proud of or what I don't like and what is not my pride is company that do fuck all to support any community of this kind comes to pride slap a rainbow and everything offer me a job for 20p and then call themselves a pride activist and I'm like no no you can go fuck yourself because all of a sudden my fees are just tripled Mm.
1: Like, there's a lot of pressure for performers to perform for free at Pride because it's got this kind of political activist air to it, which actually allows for a lot of
0: exploitation, if I understood that correctly. Yeah, totally. It's it's the pressure to be seen to be performing at Pride to the point where you're working for companies. I got offered a gig by and they basically offered me, we're going to have to bleep that out, but they offered me a gig for like 50 quid. Oh, fuck
1: this is nonsense isn't it firstly like of all the people that can afford it and secondly surely pride is the time like you say to triple your fees it's the time to actively do good for a community through many ways one of which is supporting artists that belong to that community by paying them properly
0: yeah oh and the entitlement around it is absolutely insane was it last year there was loads of digital pride events and i didn't do any of them i didn't help any of them because none of them not a single one i was offered was in any way supportive of the communities in any way and i just didn't have the energy to tell them off yeah there was one in particular that was a games company and they contacted me being like oh so if you could just give me all the the list of names of performers that you had for lads for that time if you give me all the lists and all the email addresses for all of them so that we could possibly have them for this non-paid event I'm like you are not taking my work for free and claiming it and then not paying those artists like no 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 that area of pride makes me furious yeah there we go that's my rant. To so bring back it being a protest a and one. actually focusing on the issues that we need to really focus on.
1: I really like the idea you said about protest can be a celebration because I want to talk about like mental health and activism as well. As in, like, how can you protect yourself whilst putting your mind and your, your reading and and are putting yourself into spaces where you're constantly reminded of awful things, and the idea that actually not all forms of protest need to be angry or or negative celebration especially celebration of something that's being othered or something that's being repressed or something that the society is trying to dampen down or get rid of or that you know there's violence towards is a power like to to celebrate who you are Mm. is an amazing protest which lots of people still don't have the luxury of
0: yeah we'll get to this later but like i reread a thing i wrote in an article a few years ago and i wrote in it being like our burlesque is great because i get to have my own mini protest every friday and saturday night and i was like I don't remember writing that, but fuck me. (laughs) Nice. No. Well done, (laughs) Milo. I'll take it. And just as a side note, like that's why protesting last year was most pride for me because it's like actually connecting with the community. And like, I'm, Really support charities and people listening. Go check out Mermaids, the Albert Kennedy Trust, places like that that support transgender youth. It's very good. Also, if you want to go more local, there's a really awesome project called The Outside Project. They are local to London and basically they house people who have been rejected or are fleeing abusive situations due to their identity and sexual orientation. Amazing. Trying to hit me with your stuff? Hit me with it. Hit me with it! (laughs) it.
1: Punch you in the face with the history of burlesque! Um, (laughs) Yay! Well, I decided to use this section of the podcast to exercise one of my rage points, which is the every time, and I've heard this many times. I hear somebody in the burlesque community complaining about burlesque being too political or too activist or oh can't we just you know it's just about like sparkling and just beautiful things I don't know why everybody has to be so political about it and (laughs) firstly you don't have to like political burlesque I'm not like here to judge people's preferences some people prefer their burlesque to be sparkly and shiny and actually if you dig deep into a lot of that type of burlesque there's still a lot of protest sitting under there. Protest against uh, censorship, protest against expectation protest against autonomy of your body, and as Lola well knows, and some of you know, um, I agree totally with her sentiment that, like our existence, actually is a protest. Performing a self-designed act where you reclaim your sensuality and your sexual identity and your gender identity is a protest at times. So even within the most sparkly of burlesque, people forget that your existence is a protest. So, I'm not here to knock people's preferences, but I am here to knock this idea that there's no inherent activist roots within the art form of burlesque. And then, so I want to talk a little bit about that and a little bit about cabaret. We could talk about this for absolutely fucking hours, and we're not going to do this. I'm going to give you like some short pointers. So, quote unquote, too political. So, we're going to talk, I say, a little bit about actually the roots of political burlesque. And if you want loads of more of this information, you can listen to our Neo to No basis, where Lola and I actually do a bit of a deep dive into where burlesque comes from and differences geographically in styles of burlesque. Did you know that there was burlesque ballet
0: in the 17th century? Right? Hang on, wait. Burlesque ballet. I guess because they had like ballet intervals in opera and in shows. So I guess because burlesque was kind of burlesque interval in that time as well.
1: Yeah, I'd always thought that the roots of burlesque's performance was what we've discussed before, like English burlesque shows, which were heavily satirical mm-hmm. and we'll touch on that really briefly, but in a passing comment, I did, through my research, come across a book called The Political Erotics of Burlesque Ballet, between 1624 and 1627 by Mark Franco. Now, the, this was performed under Louis XIII, so I don't know how subversive they were towards the crown because obviously this was crown entertainment but, in summary of this book, in contrast to earlier geometrical dance, burlesque ballet experimented with political ambivalence and critique, even even as it individualised a dancer's movement and introduced physical distortion through grotesque costuming and constructed shapes applied over the body. The chapter analyses a significant cross-section of libretti, which is the words of opera, to show that the all-male casts of burlesque ballet performed verbal and visual puns or reversals touching on sexual, class, and racial identity. And I didn't know about this whole period. So I just thought that was interesting.
0: No, I'm a bit no no I have nothing to contribute (laughs) it only makes sense to me in the sense that like burlesque when it was like a part of something else when it was like slice in a show rather than being a whole show that's the only thing I can relate it to but I couldn't tell you anything under Louis
1: Mm, I know me neither never had come across this before so anyway I thought that was interesting because it predates what we normally talk about so as you guys know the roots of burlesque as live performance are is very heavily satirical it's about parody it's about taking on the issues of the day it's about satirising upper class entertainment satirising class system in general and burlesque female dancers would wear tights as a way of saying fuck you to the gender norms of having to be covered up. Uh, Who knew tights would be a controversial item of clothing? Yeah, I always find that funny when I read it. I'm like, ooh. Yeah, they were showing off their shapely legs, thighs, and bums in a way that was outrageous at the time. So the very roots of what we think of as burlesque is just kind of there to challenge the system through entertainment. Um, Like I say, that's all I'm going to say about that because we talk about it a lot in other episodes. Um, But I wanted to talk a little bit about cabaret or cabaret, uh, K-A-B t, -T, which is the German word for the French word cabaret. And some of you might have come across this term before, but not necessarily know too much about it. So I thought it was interesting to do a little whistle-stop tour through that. Because as Burlesque, we are part, certainly nowadays we're part of the family of cabaret. Or I certainly think of us that way. So the word cabaret, I think still pronounced cabaret, That's what I'm going to do as today. Kind of has two different meanings. The first meaning is the same as the English meaning, i.e. a form of entertainment that features comedy, song, dance and theatre. But the second meaning that was very much explored during the German period of cabaret in between the wars, it describes a kind of political satire. Unlike comedians who made fun of all kinds of things, cabaret or cabaret artists pride themselves as dedicated almost completely to political and social topics of a more serious nature, which they criticize using techniques like cynicism, sarcasm, and irony. Now, the first... Ca- I'm going to actually say cabaret, so you know I'm using this different spelling. Cabaret venue was Le Chanois, which most of us have some kind of image in our heads, even if it's that beautiful poster, in France, which was founded in 1880 by Rudolf Salis. It later inspired similar venues in Germany and Austria, such as the Uberetti, the first cabaret venue, which was in Berlin in 1901. In Germany and the Jungweiner Theatre. Why did I give myself so much German to speak? (laughs) Literally (laughs) plunging the depths of my one year of German at school. The Jungweiner Theatre zum Lieben Augustin in Vienna. (laughs) Beautiful. Well done. Thank you very
0: much. I feel like with German, you have to give it everything. Yeah. You have to give it everything. Otherwise, it just doesn't work.
1: (laughs) All forms of public criticism were banned by a censor on theatres in the German Empire. So this is pre-First World War. However, this was lifted at the end of the First World War, allowing cabaret artists to deal with social themes and political developments of the time. This meant that German cabaret really began to blossom. When the Nazis came into power in 1933, they started to repress this intellectual criticism of the time and Cabaret in Germany was badly hit. Now, if any of this sounds familiar, it might be because you've watched the film Cabaret, which is, of course, inspired by a book written around this period of time. And it is a great insight into what the entertainment of that period would have looked like, as well as just being a banging good musical with some great choreography and songs. So get on it. So when the Nazis came to power, they started to repress this, of course. And a lot of cabaret artists in Germany were sent to concentration camps, were imprisoned, had to flee to different countries. You know, they put their lives on the line to create political cabaret and uh, and some of them lost their lives. And I uh, say, so some of them were exiled um, to escape the Nazis. When the war ended, the occupying powers ensured that the cabaret portrayed the horrors of the Nazi regime. So I think you've got this interesting period where those in power are actually... Encouraging artists to delve into this really, really dark period, I guess, as a kind of societal reminder therapy. I'm sure lots to unpack and delve into there. And soon various cabaret shows were also dealing with the government, the Cold War and other political issues at the time. So they kind of reclaimed their ownership of this exploration and used it to judge the time that they were living in. Which, which is fascinating I wanted to talk In particular About two Burlesque artists That I admire For their activism The first one Hopefully all of you know uh, And you can do A deep dive on this Through lots of Different means So I'm just going To give you the Headlines of her story And um, you can also On the House of Burlesque IGTV Find Demi Noir Talking about Josephine Baker I'm giving you A great insight Into her life
0: Oh I'm a huge fan Yeah Huge fan
1: Josephine Baker's awesome And she's not often Talked about I think actually she's
0: probably never talked about as a burlesque artist but i think she is i I think she's a burlesque icon i always thought it was the racism within burlesque that hasn't mentioned her because as far as i'm concerned she's one of the most burlesque burlesque icons ever jay i think it's i think it's the sexism the
1: sexism (laughs) i think it's to do with what we talked about, like people really wanting
0: to limit the scope of what burlesque covers because oh. they want to belittle it. I hear, you, I hear you, that, that. would, But in that sense, then she should be able to jump straight back in there because topless dancing in fabulous costumes and becoming an icon style-wise. I mean, maybe. That's a really interesting question. Um,
1: I, I wonder if with that drive of some people to say burlesque is striptease, Josephine Baker wasn't a striptease artist. She explored eroticism and eroticism and race. And she used a lot of parody. But she didn't work firstly in America, which we'll get into a little bit. She didn't work in the traditional burlesque houses that people like to talk about when they promote that golden era of burlesque as the defining era. Although she was American, she was a big European star. And I think it comes from this desire to like
0: want burlesque to fit into this American striptease box i'm not gonna disagree with you and i'm sure you're gonna get into it but my favorite thing is that i always forget that she was american because to me she's french yeah anyway i'm here for a whole of josephine thing i'm a massive fan hit me Hit me, hit me, give me it. Oh, it's amazing. I'm giving, I'm giving you a little summary from
1: this brilliant book called Free the Tipple, um, which dedicates cocktails to various female uh, activist icons and legends and gives a little potted history along with a very tasty recipe for a drink. So I've gone straight to the Josephine Baker one because it gives a great summary. Baker dreamed big from an early age. At 13, she ran away from a life of poverty in St. Louis, Missouri, eventually landing in New York, where she became a chorus line dancer at a hot club in Harlem. But true stardom lay in Paris, which at the time was obsessed with American jazz. She moved there in 1925 and became massively popular for two dances: the Danse Sauvage, which she performed topless in a feather skirt, and Le Folie du Jour, involving a skirt made of bananas. Baker's star power was so great that she counted Pablo Picasso and Ernest Hemingway amongst her friends. Offstage, she wore couture costume pieces from designers such as Dior and Chanel. She reportedly received thousands of marriage proposals from admirers. During World War II, Baker used her renown to fight fascism, working for the French resistance by using her sheet music to smuggle messages. Sometimes she even hid them in her underwear. So the legend goes... Post-war, she performed back in the US and she refused to dance for segregated audiences, becoming an equal rights activist in the process. So that's like a super condensed Mm. version. But basically, Josephine Baker is massively celebrated for her efforts during the war resistance, which she was given a huge honor by the French government for. The Croix de Guerre, I think it's called. The War Cross. Probably got a better translation than I've just given it. And she was a huge activists against segregation Mm. and for racial equality and there's so much inspiring uh, stuff you can find out about her and it was just her work was political wasn't it she was literally on stage yeah it was beautiful it's amazing performer hypnotic to watch and she was on stage actively challenging racial stereotypes of black women and uh, the eroticism placed on top of black women and this idea of like the fetishization of black bodies Mm. and she was doing it for predominantly white audiences who she was also
0: making money out of it and they loved her in prestigious as fuck venues like oh god i'm so glad you've chosen josephine baker because even when i just hear her name like she's on my wall and just oh just activism and glamour in one human being we should regularly aspire to be like her
1: yeah yeah she's a fucking brilliant mix of like you know being a star is hard enough and then being an activist is hard when you've got people who do both and also then risk their careers to do so i always think it's incredibly yeah. admirable and brave and risk her life as well during the war
0: yeah also like i find the time where she went back to america because she considered herself parisian and she considered herself french right from the time that she went there and i don't blame her because when she went back to america the way she was treated she was a fucking star like a fucking gem like in the world of the arts and everything and America just essentially like spatter back out to the point where she rejected her American heritage and I was just like Ugh Mm. so fascinating and awful and also queer. Oh really? She's bisexual. Right. Yeah, she married, men, but She had female lovers. It's all first-hand accounts, so it's all like diary entries and stuff like that. And it was quite hard to pin down, but it is documented in the autobiography that I have, which was written by her, one of her sons, adopted oh, sons.
1: Amazing. Yes, yeah, she adopted uh, eleven children. Is that right?
0: Yes, the first rainbow family. Am I correct? Yeah,
1: she called them the Rainbow Tribe because they were mm. all different
0: ethnicities and nationalities. Yeah, Angelina Jolie can suck it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> You copycat bitch. Anyway, and then last little thing. I just wanted to do a whip through Gypsy Rosalie's activism because Gypsy Rosalie is my burlesque heroine. And Gypsy for me is another one who I find the way that burlesque community treats are really interesting because Gypsy Rosalie is a massive star. Like, I think we underestimate, unless you know about her life, how famous she was at the time. Like, she's not just famous for being a burlesque performer, and she was not just famous within burlesque. Like, hundreds of thousands of people would line the block to watch Gypsy. Like, she was hugely popular to everyday people. She also, you know, was a great businesswoman with her work. She. Always made sure she got a percentage of the profits for her own booking. She produced a lot of work. She saddled up and went on tour. She was an incredibly practical woman you know she was a novelist she had a tv show for years if you ever want to get really angry about the patriarchy then yeah find out about why gypsy rosalie's tv show got canned and she had like judy garland and huge stars because of course she had a lot of famous friends who came on her tv show it was wildly popular and loved she was an actress she went to hollywood twice uh she performed in plays and then of course she wrote the fable of her own childhood which was made into a musical which was made into a movie starring natalie wood there's a beautiful quote of um, well I've seen it attributed to different people but her son is one of those people when she arrives for the opening night of Gypsy on Broadway and it's that she arrived a star and she left a legend I think we underestimate the mainstream fame of Gypsy Rose Lee and this for me I find really interesting because it's also combined with this thing I hear a lot about Gypsy which is oh you know she only ever removed a glove or only just dropped a shoulder
0: which is bollocks <laughs> that's absolute horseshit. and also don't put her up on a pedestal because she didn't take that money oh sorry yeah I, oh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I just, I, it's that weird combination. Yeah, it's like, firstly, we don't really know how famous she was. And then secondly, it's like, you've sanitized her. No, no, a Gypsy, full G-string, Merkin sometimes, tassels, pasties. Gypsy was a proper striptease artist. This notion that she just spoke intellectually and maybe showed a shoulder is fucking nonsense but i hear it trotted out in burlesque circles we rewatched a modesty blaze it's actually quite a cool documentary burlesque undressed and she comes out with the same nonsense
0: no yeah. sorry that just that's the epitome of like this idea that if you don't have to take your clothes off you are better at burlesque than other people and it's like no it's stop valuing people on how much flesh they show we just need to stop that just stop it right now Yeah, it's nonsense.
1: It's like they've taken the intellectualism of Gypsy and then stripped out the sexuality and and the the kind of the eroticism of what she did because they can't bear to see those two sides of her at the same time which is ironic because that's the whole point of the satire of her acts. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> anyway. Oh god that's awful that makes me physically so angry. <laughs> <bad. laughs> yeah, so fucking irritating. Again like we perpetuate this ridiculous stereotype as well within our own industry. So burlesque people please stop implying that Gypsy Rose Lee wasn't a striptease artist because it's, it's nonsense. <laughs> Anyway, that's actually not what I was going to talk about. Uh, but like, <laughs> that's just my own personal gypsy rant. Like been Baker Gypsy, Rosalie was activist through her work, as we've just discussed. And also she was activist politically, again, which isn't really talked about much. Firstly, she was massively into animal rights and animal welfare. She was vice president of the Greenwich Village Humane Society. She worked tirelessly for them. She'd visit animal sanctuaries. And um, so that was one of her big loves and one of her activism streaks. But you know, she was also blacklisted. For being a big a commie, being a communist. Yes. Yeah, so I find this yes. fascinating because I always associate Gypsy's kind of identity as really embodying that individualistic make money spirit that we associate with capitalism. But actually, she wasn't afraid to be political, firstly, and she was a supporter of the anti-fascist popular front movement in the Spanish Civil War. She raised money for charity to alleviate the suffering of Spanish children during the conflict, and she supported the Spanish loyalists during said civil war. As she was fiercely pro-union. She was always campaigning for labor rights and supporting movements for labor rights through unionizing. And she became a fixture at the Communist United Front meetings. Uh, hence, she was <gasps> investigated by the Head Committee on Un-American Activities. I had no idea. Yeah, so this is a quote from an article uh, which is... Advertising a broadcast, which sounds fascinating, going through the lives of a group of female entertainers who were blacklisted and then had their careers basically either binned or put on hold for a period of time. I just thought it was a lovely quote. Uh, In 1950, she was blacklisted from television and radio for her left wing political views. In the late 1940s and early 50s, these women, talking about the women covered in this broadcast, dreamed of using the new medium of television to create programs that embody their progressive ideals of gender and racial equality. But their ambitions were thwarted by the likes of senator joe mccarthy and fbi director j edgar hoover so that's my little um little toe dip into gypsy's offstage activist leanings as one of our burlesque icons
0: that is absolutely fantastic i honestly didn't know anything about her commie side not a clue that's really, really fascinating. Thank you. Thank you, Tempest. Pleasure. Pleasure. Look you text messaging me like four days before the podcast going, do you think we should put some effort into this one? Apparently we should. Look at us go. This is lovely. <laughs> I wonder if our listeners will notice. That's glorious. We forget like that the burlesque icons were not just these pictures of like badassery in the past that they actually did shit. Mm.
1: Yeah. Do you feel pressure to be activist in our circles? Yes. Yes.
0: I think it's to do with the dawning of social media. I think there is this kind of like, if you can update the world about what you had for breakfast, you can also update them about your political views. I'm sure it's in two parts. I strongly believe that if you have a following on social media, you should be using it for the benefit. And I do try to incorporate my political views and what I believe in. But I honestly, this idea of activism, like, but it's not really, I don't consider it activism because I don't feel like I'm risking my life or risking anything. I feel like I'm stating things that just should be happening. Like I'm not in a place where I'm going to get shot or killed. I'm in an extreme amount of privilege for stating my views safely from my sofa. And I think people forget that with the online activism that we have and the arguments that we have online. People forget that we're having those arguments from such a place of, safety for some folk. This isn't for everyone. I'm very much talking about like a white cis gendered activist person, political person. Uh, you forget the safety in which you're, you're arguing your point in. And I'm like, there's people like getting detained for being gay still. And they are my sisters and brethren across the world. And it's like, <laughs> 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 there's a really amazing ugandan artist who um my friend put me in contact with uh, and they were like can you promote this person's photography because they are a queer artists and they've gotten into a photography school and it's a really big deal apart from they obviously can't afford to go um so we're trying to raise funds to get them there. so i was like yeah of course definitely and i accidentally by promoting their work they then got in contact with me to say thanks and then i started chatting to them and the way they were talking about how they can't live the life that they want to leave, live and they can't be queer in public and they can't be with the woman they love and they were like I really really love your page it's so amazing to see someone be so authentically yourself and like so amazing you're just like queer just like constantly like you're really just talking about it all the time and, and then like because I'm in no danger and it is awful to have that conversation and be like right we've got work to do everyone get saddle up get <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, that's my point. I don't <laughs> know if that was a point. That was just a
1: rant at you. No, I, it is a point, isn't it? The safety. Oh, it's just, for me, this is like this whole big jumbled mess of what social media does. So because on the one hand, like social media is probably must be one of the greatest inventions for the possibility of activism and the magnification of voices that, that don't carry societal power. It doesn't always work that way, but there are great examples of social media being able to provide amplification to grassroots communities, to groups that are challenging the status quo of like the government voice, the corporation voice, Um, you know, it amplifies the little person voice. But at the same time, you know, social media is a giant fucking mess and we will get into lots of um, things around that. And when you were talking about the example that you just gave, it made me think of the frustrations we sometimes feel where we see... Uh, from our pockets, people going really, really hard over issues where we're basically nitpicking, we're like purity checking each other. When, like you say, there are people dying, there are people being imprisoned, there are there are huge issues we should be tackling, we should be helping, or we should be finding a way that we can lend our support to. Do we really need to burn each other at the stake for something? where the rules of which are probably going to change in the next three seconds and that's my frustration generally with like our progressive circles and what social media
0: does yeah i hear you i really do i wonder if some of it comes from a place where we feel like we're almost there we just got to push we just got to push and that's this constant feeling that we're almost there we're almost there almost there but the truth is like activism will always exist and these arguments will all exist because a perfect world is is something beautiful to strive for but fundamentally is impossible because humans themselves are so fallible to the extent where I'm having discussions with people online about how lizard people are existing and you're like oh okay cool the activism will always exist there'll always be something to support or to change or to move because we're evolving but yeah I feel like to argue over some of the things that we argue online And to react in the way that sometimes we react to certain people online comes from such a place of privilege, which is something we, I don't think we necessarily address. Mm. It's important to have all the discussions we're having. Also, how do you define what's more important than something else? Yeah, you can't really. You can't. And this is what we were talking about when we talk about activism or do what you can for as long as you can is the only thing that you can do when it comes to trying to be active or trying to change the world or trying to change your circle or whatever because you can't do it all there is too much wrong with this fucking earth (laughs) you can't (laughs) physically care about everything without destroying yourself Mm. and the reason that these icons that we spoke about succeeded and did change and made change is because they dedicated their life to a few things And if everyone took on board a few things or even one thing, we'd get a lot more done than shouting each other down for not covering everything.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um and we're all guilty of it and we talked before about how social media is designed by nature to increase conflict because that's what gets people coming back and coming back. Particularly when you look at political activism and I'm like certainly not the first person to say this as is a well-worn discussion, but you know, you, you always have this problem I think where you've got the right who will forgive each other differences and ideology because the only thing they give a fuck about is being in power. Once you're in power, you can affect change. And then you've got the left, or whether you want to call that more liberal, like if you want to think of it in, you know, in whatever language works for you, you don't necessarily need to think of it as right and left politically. We do get into these factions, which happens all the time and happens over history and happens in every circle where you end up fighting amongst each other over whose ideology is correct or purer and then it never goes anywhere. (laughs) But the fact is, is that you can't affect change without power. And I just wish, particularly when I'm thinking of activism in terms of like politics, people would just stop yelling at each other who have essentially the same core values and start realizing where the real enemy is.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, is that saying, is like, imagine how much the left would get done if we stopped fighting amongst ourselves. Yeah, it's so
1: endlessly frustrating. <laughs> and I think a lot of it comes down to what you raised earlier, which is expecting purity of your icons within activist fields, whereas human beings are fallible. And like, don't get me wrong, like, I don't think we should overlook harmful acts I'm not making excuses for terrible things people have done. But the the more that we manage to get our head around the fact that some people can do amazing things and still be fucking assholes and you shouldn't deify them, but you can say these things were amazing and that's positive. We must surely be able to, please God, <laughs> get to the stage where we stop thinking of people as wholly good and bad. But the internet likes simplicity mm. and idealism likes simplicity. And that's part of the problem. Yeah,
0: you're right. It's that balance of like, people should be held accountable for bad things and stuff like that. And I'm not disagreeing with that. It's just, I find what I'm struggling with and what I desire to see is an activism that I'm absolutely desperate for. And it's an activism to see growth, mm. like an activism of growth an activism to say that person has said that, but we are going to facilitate change, actual change. We are going to facilitate the education of the world. We're going to facilitate the compassion it takes to move us forward as a unit and not drag everyone down back of it. And it's of course like the council culture to its extent, I understand why it's there. I feel we're in an age of activism at the moment where we are raising a generation of really passionate, Activists, i feel the youth the youth i feel the youth (laughs) i feel the youth being so present to politics and of course because they're living through a pandemic they're living through these things there's no way in hell that they can't be engaged with what's going on in the world right now and i kind of feel bad for them because i was definitely privileged enough not to necessarily be involved in politics or anything at that age when i was younger so the one thing i hope in that fury and in that that they grow that capacity for compassion to facilitate people's changing opinions like i want to hear people being accountable watch them change and then watch us move on hmm. i think it's the activism of healing is what i'm hoping for yeah but maybe that's just too hopeful <laughs>
1: <laughs> what is this utopia of which you speak <clears throat> Yeah. Oh my God. Well, it's always that thing with you, isn't it? Like when you're young, you're so passionate and you're so idealistic. And I remember that age and you just like everything is a black and white issue and you've got so much power and that's great. And when you're older, you have experience and realism, and you have more power, and you understand how to get things done. But you don't really have any idealism, and what, what a lot of people settle into as they grow older, isn't it? Which is like, well, it's never going to change. Hey, you can go and you <laughs> go and you sign your petition, but it's not—it's never going to change. It's always been this way. Fuck it. And in an ideal world, you have both, don't you? <laughs> like you say, you've got experience, you've got compassion, you understand that people are fallible, that people make mistakes, but that doesn't mean that you need. To to burn them at the stake and erase every bit of good that they did because they fucked up or they made a mistake or whatever but often that age of experience loses the idealism and passion and this belief that you have as a young person because the world is your oyster that the world can be different which is magical and and beautiful. Mm. I really like what you said about growth because I wrote down Is your activism about you or is your activism about making something better? And when you were talking about like allowing people to grow as humans, I also think it's really important. Like growth is a great benchmark for what is positive activism. Is this about you taking up space, centering yourself, or just trying to like cosplay activism? (laughs) Or, Or is this going to actually make a fucking change? And I think trying to think that way might help stop some of this
0: vindictive activism we see, which is really all about ego. I couldn't agree more. It's music to my fucking ears, babe. Music to my fucking ears. <laughs> I think we're really raised that the idea of activism is sticking to your guns, and that idea of an activism is really holding true to your beliefs and standing your ground and things. It's like, no, activism is seeing that you're wrong and changing that's punk as fuck that's activism we're so hell-bent on this idea that you're not an activist unless you really hold to your beliefs to the point where you literally don't even question the beliefs that you have anymore because you're just holding on to them for the sheer hell of it yeah especially in a time where we are in such fluid fluidity and if i look even at the queer community over the last 40 years like look at the queer community over the last 60 years let's look at it from like martha p johnson's life when she died in 1992 we still hadn't really hammered down language towards transgender and gender non-conforming human beings and we're still defining it now so like change is going to happen so fast and it's happening even faster with this snowball of social media that the capacity to say oh no my ideas have changed is the most revolutionary thing you can do
1: oh my god yes i love that what she said <laughs> <laughs> and you're so right isn't it like there's the glamorization of inflexibility of like dogma of of just being rigid and and feeling that that's a good thing when actually it can be really harmful and it can stop progress
0: mm.
1: yeah I find like there's a lot of elitism as well in online activism in in lots of different ways the one I'm going to bring up is a, we've got this right and um You haven't. And I do see some activism online and think this isn't, again, about making anything better. It's about you proving to everyone else that you've got it right and they've got it wrong. But it's hard. I think, you know, it's easy to trip over that line, but it's not good.
0: Yeah, no, no, no. I I completely hear you. And it was something that was really prevalent and the real upswing of Black Lives Matter in in 2020. Obviously, um, anyone listening, we know that was going on for a lot longer before that and it's still going. It's not a moment, it's a movement. There we go, that's the phrase. But it's the whole concept of like silence is violence and um, this idea that you, you have to contribute, um, but people so scared of the wrong step or the wrong mark because it was such a upheaval and such a fast moving time where things were definitions were changing day by day by day like I swear through the month of June day to day everything was changing and if you weren't up to date with everything then you weren't the activist or you weren't a part of it and it was and it was great that everyone got so involved and it's fantastic and like the change and the discussion around it especially like I can tell you within my friendship groups and friendship groups that are predominantly white, the discussion around it has shifted. The shifted the conversation with my family has shifted because of this. There is actual change that I can see in my direct life. I also think it taught everyone that they could be active. Um, because I realised researching this that my standards of activism is really low. I consider uh, the smallest thing activism, like just random acts of kindness to me are activism. I don't think you need to be throwing stones through glass or throwing yourself in front of a horse to try to activate change in the world. You could activate change in the world by being nice to your corner shop owner, being nice to your neighbor, check in with someone. Um, That's fucking activism. That's like, uh, but maybe that's (laughs) my standards are so low.
1: (laughs) I agree with you. And that's manageable. Mm. Is that a sad indictment on our society that that? isn't just commonplace decency
0: yeah maybe i have no idea how to contribute to that maybe we should talk about things that you can do to be active and to activate change not necessarily in the world possibly in the world but also within your world and with the people around you you have time and if especially if you have mental health issues like depression volunteering does help go check out your local community centers see if they need some help because if anything it gives you something to do and there's no way in hell that I would have gotten through this pandemic if I didn't have that little food bank to be like I'm organizing something god damn it yeah and also the other thing of like volunteering and working in those spaces one thing that I people don't realize is that being around people who's Life is dedicated to this cause, makes you realize that there are people doing stuff to activate change and it makes you feel better because there's like people who will care and people who nice. Oh, that was nice. <laughs> but yeah, so there's like things like that where you can just directly activate change in your community. Be a part of it. Go check in. There's food banks all around you, there's homeless centers, there's people that need a hand, or yeah. just make friends with your elderly neighbor. Oh, that's so boring. <laughs> Joking. <laughs> You've got the wrong elderly neighbors. My old elderly neighbor was a fucking badass. (laughs) Um,
1: Something that we see, particularly in our industry, that's worth examining in ourselves, because we all, like you say, in the spirit of growth, (laughs) want to be better, is because burlesque favors activism, I think in a lot of its pockets. And that's one of the things that I love about it. And so we, we glamorize, or rather we prioritize, progressive trains of thought, which is great. But have you noticed sometimes within burlesque, people see using activism as a way to get attention online (laughs) and a way to get applause essentially. And that for me is problematic because it goes into this, like, is this about making things better or is this about your own ego? And in a period particularly where people aren't having stage time, uh, sometimes this can be more prevalent. It's, uh, it's tricky. <laughs>
0: We're doing this with a caveat that it might not go in, but fucking yeah, it drives me up the fucking wall. If I see any more pseudo fucking feminist acts launch at my door, you send me an act telling me that you're a fucking feminist and you're talking about sexual assault, but hands down at the same time with the other hand working for a serial rapist. No, I will not hire you and your false feminism. No, I will not hire you and your penny to, towards some form of activism. No, I will not let you make money off a movement that I have care so much about, how dare you come knocking at my door Oh, oh yes. <laughs> I feel like a tharsis where you just took your rage
1: and mine and said it and I'm so here for it, that actually has been one of those things that has sat with me since 2012 yeah and people, people who know will know why that day is significant of just this rage of exactly what you've just talked about and knowing that that exists and it when I've gone through periods of hating burlesque, that hypocrisy has been one of the things that's made me want to burn this whole thing to the ground.
0: <laughs> yeah, that one in particular is one that's really, really prevalent with us. And it's it's such a direct thing you can see. And it's it's just, no, it drives me up the wall. And it's what some, one thing I really noticed since starting LADS, and in particular, because LADS, obviously, the 100 current is are huge, as feminists, as I possibly would like so people give me their most feminist acts to the point where people are making feminist specific acts and i'm like if your feminism doesn't account for your own actions or doesn't account for like racism transphobia ableism any of those categories and just applies to your white skinny body self talking about body confidence confidence issues on stage i don't have time for it i don't have time for it your voice is not invalid your feelings are not invalid but that space is already dominated and that space is also hypocritical hypocritical uh, hypocritical thank you words well done yeah it's also that and in a time where the only form of success we have as artists at the moment is online where our likes and our followers are an indication of how successful we are that's all we have right now as artists that's the only thing we have that's the only thing to validate and it's awful and to the point where i have to really really consciously remind myself that it doesn't matter it doesn't matter so people jumping on bandwagons to highlight their political views, in particular to get a round of applause for saying something, but doing fuck all alongside it, yeah, it really gets my tits up. It's a no from us.
1: Uh, the other one is, in that vein, I will not, to my knowledge, to the best of my ability, I'm not paying money to people who are happy to take money out of activist companies and scenarios but don't put the effort in themselves. You can't make money off the back of shows or companies or movements by like coattailing along with it. But when it comes to, like you say, putting in the work yourself or putting something out there or like, you know, just like putting some effort in through your own work or your own presence, you can't be fucked to do it. That's your choice. That's cool. And I've got my choice too. You can't make money out of activism, but not contribute to the conversation.
0: I think that's my argument against Drag Race. Why? Mm. Like you're making money out of activism, but not necessarily contributing it to it. All you're doing is perpetuating the singular idea of what drag is. Mm. So, for enforce, you're damaging it. That's really interesting. That's really nicely put. I really like that. Oh, I'm going to steal it and use it for later when people think I'm smart enough to say things like that. Thanks. It's
1: taken months <laughs> to work <look> out <laughs> my brain. So use yeah. my, uh, use my uh, slow mental process. See, I can't even think of how to describe it. That's uh, so <laughs> slowly my brain's working at the moment. Also, we see a lot in our circles online of people who think activism is tearing somebody else down. Oh, God. <laughs> and it's,
0: uh, it's just so hideous to watch this is something that really fucking fucks me off to fuckery so i was having a discussion
1: with somebody you might have had the same discussion with them um who wanted to research nightlife safety so this person is doing some academic research having worked in nightlife for a long time at a high level of experience about kind of safety issues and is there anything that could be done to make nightlife work safer and so we were throwing around some rough ideas that they had one of which was I think something that exists in comedy, which is like, you kind of certify venues, like if certain venues or producers sign up to like voluntarily a code of conduct, then they get like a little gold star essentially that says that they're like safe spaces to work. And I was just like, I'm sorry, but the problematic venues and producers I know would be the first people to sign up to this and you wouldn't have the teeth to say no <laughs> to them and that for me again is is a lip service activism in a way it's like you're not really solving the issue the problem is these issues are really difficult to solve and uh, it's something that sounds great but doesn't really help anybody It's
0: like having the little frog that says rainforest certified on a box of chocolate. It's like, no, it's still destroying the fucking rainforest. It's not. doesn't make it better. It's like, also, do you know what free range means? Do you honestly know what free range means? No, but it's written on your eggs. So therefore it's totally fine. No fucking way do I ever fucking trust anything that says it's okay.
1: Yeah. You know full well that this isn't going to solve anything. Plus, you've got a whole load of performers who don't really give a shit and will just work for anybody because they don't consider that maybe they should have a sense of ethics when it applies to
0: what work they take. Yeah. What do you recommend that we can do? Small things, big things, cardboard box (laughs) to uh, make the world a better place?
1: Uh, I'm going to steal some things out of a discussion that Betsy and I had with Sadie Sinner of uh, the Cocoa Butter Club on our patreon (laughs) guys do you know i have a patreon anyway we had a discussion about effective allyship and she made some great suggestions and we kind of had a really productive discussion about what are positive steps that you can take so i'm going to use some of those uh, and thank her for her sterling work and contribution and ideas because there's a lot over i think like you know all white lineups and and wanting to be effective allies in our industry particularly when it comes down to issues of race and she was very much like Take yourself out the equation and try and make some positive changes. And ways that you can do that as a performer can be simple things like sharing an event, of something that you are passionate about or you believe in or you want to have further visibility. Social media is all about visibility. This is the thing that makes us want to bang our heads against the wall. And there are tricks that you can do, such as saving a post, such as sharing a post, such as liking and commenting. It's supposed to be more than four words or something at the moment. And that's a really tiny thing that's free, that doesn't cost you anything. And you can do that, for example, with shows that platform diversity. Even if you don't attend to go, you can share the news of that production. Um, She's saying you can do shares, with people so you can donate time if you don't have money to donate we talk a lot about glow up um, and that's something that performers can do and if you are producers you have even bigger space to donate time not to parade about how great you are at platforming other people but to help shows and productions maybe move up a rung or learn more about a skill set that you understand that could help them have greater visibility or greater success as a project so she made some great suggestions around. I like, think about the skills that you have and then think about donating those skills and those times to people who you want to increase the visibility of. And then social media, again, amplify voices, amplify voices rather than using your own voice. So I thought that was a
0: helpful mindset. I think that's really, really lovely. I think that's a really achievable and great thing, especially within the performance community. I think that's really, really lovely. And there's more things that you can do to help accounts in a time of like algorithms really weird and trying to figure out essentially you're helping with marketing and that's that's really great um i'd like to
1: add <laughs> All right. if you can maybe be the change you want to see It's harder and it is easier to yell at somebody about how they're doing something wrong. But what's more effective is maybe if you try and create what you want to see. Now, that requires a certain amount of time or privilege. But if you have those at those disposal, and I think that goes back to like proactive and negative activism, before you decide your activism means yelling at someone, maybe think, I'm so passionate about this. What can I do to platform something or to do something? Be the change you want to see, team. Because at the end of the day, we all have our own bias. I mean, that's a fact. You can't solve every issue. You can't promote every single thing. Every single person carries the bias of what they want to see and what's important to them. Mm -hmm. And you can't expect everybody to have the same hierarchy as you. So do something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do something. Anything. Anything to add? Be kind, yeah. That's always the thing that I'm always going to return to. Be kind. Uh, that's pretty much it. <laughs> the thing that I talk about when I was trying to explain it, what I think is activism in some ways is like when you know you're like in a rush and you're feeling really crap and like you're like in a like stressful mood and like you're trying to get on the train and someone barges past you and you're just like, oh, for fuck's sake, and fuck off. I think. Being kind in your daily life and realising that everyone has their own lives that they're trying to just get through from the next day to the next, especially now more than ever. I think active compassion is extremely important. And recycle. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're totally right. Be the change. If there's something you're passionate about and something someone else's actions make you angry, you can spend that energy getting angry at them or you can spend that anger energy creating something there are a million places that need your help there are so many charities and companies that would benefit from you even just platforming them or talking to someone about them or researching them and just understanding that they exist and why they exist oh education people think that educating themselves around uh political issues is really boring and i don't blame them because we're kind of sold this idea that it's just like jargon of uh, rage anger emotional stuff that's not really accessible to anyone and you feel on the outside or you don't quite know what you're researching but this episode in particular like if you even type in to google like i did <laughs> activists <laughs> Oh, because I couldn't decide on an activist. I couldn't decide on one, but then I was like, I'm going to go with someone that I know and type in like disabled activists. And I got stuck down a rabbit hole for four hours researching disabled activists that I had never heard about because they are some boss ass motherfuckers taking down the system and everyone in it in an amazing way where they're basically, there's one guy in particular, who's was just like trying to redesign cities. That's a huge concept. That's huge. It's Victor Pineda absolutely fantastic dr victor panina but yeah just type in activists and just research one for a while because it will just inspire you to be like oh that's nice read the josephine baker autobiography like they're amazing biography not autobiography biographies i don't think she she did write she wrote three herself didn't she i like reading biographies rather than autobiographies
1: yeah i think it's a really amazing thing to do also because I don't know, I think it's really inspiring reading about human beings doing amazing things because it shows you that we can be bigger than our daily lives. Mm. Like, I don't know, there's something really inspiring about it. <laughs> That's a really wanky statement. It's just something very inspiring about reading about activism. When you were talking about that, uh, education, which is a great point, diversify the media you consume because... You can't, I think, change the world and make a better world if you have no empathy and you need to be able to understand different people's perspectives on lives such as, you know, then you can better identify things like ableism. Um, But if you never put yourself into spaces where you can hear the stories from those people of how life is and perspectives and have empathy for people who live in different circumstances to you and especially if you have a lot of privilege that's a great starting
0: spot yeah surely it doesn't have to include you for you to celebrate groups that have found each other yeah diversifying your new media feed and what's around you representation matters it really matters if you have kids uh, expose them to a more diverse media representation because that's the best time get them while they're young (laughs) get them while they're (laughs) young i want to say a very quick thing
1: about making sure that you're maintaining self-care for your activism and that particularly to me relates to if you're very passionate about something that affects you once you start researching more on it and becoming aware of it you see it everywhere and that Mm. is overwhelming and traumatizing and I'm not sure we have a lot of discussions around self-care to do with activism. I use myself as an example. i very passionate about rape and sexual assault and how that works with um, legal frameworks and what happens in the law and what happens at trials. And to feel like I was doing something positive towards that for a period of time, I volunteered with a group called WAR, who were incredibly active during the 70s and 80s, still exist, grassroots organization, Women Against Rape. And once I had cracked my eyelids open a peak to take in these processes in the world in which I lived in all of a sudden it's everywhere and then you get to the stage where I'm like our entire society is designed around perpetuating this hideous crime like you just when you see so many failings time and time again in the legal system in the way that police work and then you know, you can't get out of bed in the morning. (laughs) The entire world you live in becomes this horrendous nightmare. And all of those things are true. All of the things that I was finding hard to cope with every day were real. But the fact of the matter is, is you're not served by always placing yourself into the hyper-awareness of all of that. And it feels selfish and it feels wrong to close the door to it. But you can't be productive on an issue that you care about if you don't put in safeguards to stop yourself being constantly traumatized by what you're seeing around you again particularly if the people who are experiencing these things so often look like you you know it's very personal then so take care and don't feel guilty about just closing the door on it so you're not reliving it constantly because because you have to otherwise you can't function Mm.
0: Uh, i fully agree yeah i have nothing to add apart from what you said what she said (laughs) cool we're done i think we're done oh, okay well it's not burlesque unless you've fucked the system in one way
1: <laughs> it's not burlesque unless you're pretty sure you're doing it correctly and everyone else is wrong
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh the hell we haven't had an episode like that for a while i think
1: there's like half of the stuff
0: i haven't even got through <laughs> yeah i'm, I'm staring at my page and i'm like I'm not, I'm not gonna touch it i'm not gonna touch it we'll save it for another time
1: oh uh, yeah, yeah no we just right enough hours in a day but it's a uh, it's a great topic i'd like to thank my esteemed colleague lolo brow for
0: her time for her labor for her energy for her puns <laughs> and i would like to thank my esteemed coworker, coworker, colleague uh, what would you call you <laughs>
1: Co-host,
0: know. co-host, hey. my co-host for existing and maintaining absolutely a no-nonsense attitude towards both things. Congratulations.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much to our producer, Richie Ruru's. Roo you failed to make us rich, Rich, but we still love you. <laughs> this podcast would sound like just some inane ramblings and <laughs> grasping at words and heavy breathing and narration of Vladimir's psychotic tendencies which you guys miss out on a lot of which is I feel sad for you
0: I was gonna say whenever I listen to recording I think everyone thinks that like Naya's really naughty and is just this quiet thing and I'm like oh wow Vladimir just gets like cut out of this he's like gaslighting the entire world
1: you could have a mini episode that's just you going ow oh Vladimir oh hang on <laughs> hang on I've got a lemon come on get down <laughs>
0: <laughs> what the fuck are you doing what the fuck was the-
1: oh my god <laughs> So thanks, Rich. You make us sound awesome. We couldn't do this without you. Go check out Rich's podcast, I Might Be Wrong UK, if you like music and lols.
0: And also a huge thank you to Rosie Verbose for the track that you hear at the end of this episode and all episodes because it's still relevant. Absolutely phenomenal. And uh, do check out their amazing collective all about mental health awareness called The Invisible Cabaret. Check them out.
1: Thank you to you, dear listeners. Firstly, a thank you to our Patreon subscribers who have been enjoying... A selection of lols uh, Privately for them If you feel like you want to join into this exclusive club You can But not on the basic tier Which is just to show us that you love us And we're all here for that Yeah Which is eminently affordable This is one way that you can support artists Uh, I've written a a new song this week Because I so enjoyed living on a prayer Oh it was so good (laughs) (laughs) I've been inspired by Madonna's Holiday because i need to get the fuck out of this country but that's not gonna happen for a while for any of us so here's today's boss bitch botanic which i've realized isn't the title of this tier but it's what i've been calling it what is it then i don't know i think it's something else i looked at it the other day and it's just gone straight out of my head memorable <laughs> names that's a good thing we will turn this world around and bring back all of those happy days <laughs> Put the Netflix down, I need strangers in my face. But until that time, as we sit on our behinds, Botanicans came together, helping make things better. Thanks, Kate and Jay and
0: Fay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, I love how much effort you're putting into these these days this is great Brings I can't wait joy. for it to burn out <laughs> I mean I've done two so. <laughs> stop being productive you know that's my rage of the week is you being so fucking productive <laughs> again I have nothing else to do <laughs> but neither do I but that doesn't mean I'm doing anything about it <laughs> you're working and packing <laughs> but they're not like actual things No. do you want to plug your pluggables
1: um as you know we have a patreon <laughs> So get on that. Last week I didn't plug the Valentine's Day show and now it's too late to do so. <laughs> <laughs> so, <fuck you. laughs> so in your face, if you want to keep up to date with what we've got going on at House of Burlesque because I'll forget to tell you it, then make sure you're following us on Instagram at H-O-B Tempest Rose, which is also the address of our Patreon. Lolo brow.
0: Yeah, you can follow me on all social media at Lolo brow. There's literally the only one because no one was stupid enough to have that name apart from TikTok, where there is someone who has Lolo brow as their name and they just release gaming videos. And I feel like I need to have a word. So I'm a Lolo brow official, which feels really unnecessary. <laughs> you of those dicks? <laughs> well because eventually it was the it was the low low brow and then i was like i'm never gonna remember that i feel like if i just conform to something that'll make sense and i'll oh, i don't fucking know um sign love up it. to my only fans or people who listen to this podcast and also are my only fans thanks for being such wonderfully diverse fuckers love you love you very much i feel like there's something else i need to do hang on hang on no, no
1: that's it that's it bye thanks guys you've been awesome please rate the podcast send us fun messages
0: online we we like it we like it talk to us we're so alone love you bye see you next Tuesday so you wanna be a showgirl a star of cabaret but the closure of the theatres leaves a hole in your heart and in your day well, here's two artists who miss burlesque gigs performing and acting moronic. People who, when life gives them lemons, just slice them up for a gin and tonic. They put the mock in mocktail, the cock in cocktail. Let them show you how. It's gin salt with Tempest Rose and low, low.
1: What was that is that just my morals flying past
0: you? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was Vladimir like climbing the ceiling, full on upside down, and then falling onto a shelf.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> such an attention seeker. Yeah.